One thing I want to do is read the extended section here. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about us missing the, the forest for the trees. You know, we've been moving kind of slowly through this. And, and, the, and I've been trying to give you the big picture, but I think if I just read this section, verses 7 through the end of chapter 3, and then uh, so we see the big picture of what Paul's saying, and then we'll go back on verse 11 where we were discussing this. Okay, starting with verse 7, I'm going to read First Corinthians, Second Corinthians 3, starting with verse 7. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could, could not look intently on the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be with even more glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such hope, we have great boldness of speech. We are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled faith, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So you can see that from verses 7 through 18, there's a discussion of this veil. All right, And the term veil is used, first of all, to describe the literal veil that was over Moses' face, when he came down from Mount Sinai to separate the people from the glory that was shining from his face. Then it's used in a figurative way to describe the veil that lies over the heart of someone who's unconverted. In particularly here, talking about people, the, the old covenant people with Torah, but not being able to see the true glory of it, because of a veil. And this, this veil is one over the heart and is caused by hardness of heart. And it says, uh, whenever a, a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So there's a veil that's removed from our hearts at conversion. And I think that anybody who's truly converted, who's truly met Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, knows that to be true, that a veil was removed, and that now everything you see so much clearer. You see the truth of the Bible, you see the reality of Jesus Christ, and you believe the truth because you can see it so clearly. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. So uh, before the veil is removed, it's, it's like we can read the Bible, we can hear the gospel, we can hear preachers, we can read the scripture or whatever, and it just doesn't sink in. It's just like a bunch of religious words. 
But when a person turns to the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, it says, gives us liberty. He, he, he delivers us from our spiritual blindness and gives us spiritual insight so we can see into the things of God. And so that's the glory that, that Paul's talking about, this new covenant glory that doesn't fade and that actually is getting more intense because the, the God's glory never changes because God doesn't change, but we're being conformed into that image of, from glory to glory as we're looking into the, the Word and, uh, and the Holy Spirit's at work in our life. So that's the big picture. So to make sure we don't get caught in the details, I wanted to, to set that stage of the big picture. Now, um, let's pray. And by the way, I've gotten some emails from some of the listeners um, around the world, including a delightful brother in South Africa. And if you're listening, we greet you. Um, and they thank us for praying for them. So we, we pray for the people that are listening around the world who have been deprived of fellowship for various reasons. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our dear brothers and sisters in Christ who are scattered abroad, who may be even in this country and have lost fellowship, who have been uh, deprived of the pure teaching of the Word because of some of the trends in the church. For whatever reason, we pray that today that the, your Word would also bring light and, and, and blessing into their hearts and minds. And, and Lord, make them uh, just know that they're a part of our fellowship. We really do pray for them and care about them and want to see the best for them, as well as for us. Thank you for fellowship. Thank you for the means of grace. Thank you for a Sunday to gather, to enjoy those together in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today we are on verse 11, having set the stage. We're on verse 11. It says, For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Now I talked about this a little bit before I took a little time off here because I was supposed to keep my foot up and that I uh, wasn't a very good patient at first weekend. <coughs> so today I'm, um, I'm much better. I'm healing up, so I'll be able to teach and preach today. So we mentioned this uh, participle, uh, present passive participle singular neuter, that which fades away, katargumenon, and the reason I mentioned that participle is that um, it, it, a participle is a verb form that also acts like an adjective. And so it also has to agree with the noun that is modifying uh, in, in its, uh, in its uh, case. So we have here uh, something that's neuter. So it's not referring to glory. It's referring, I believe, to the Mosaic Covenant. So what's fading away here? And that word uh, means to render inoperative. It can, be, it can be translated to abolish, to put to a stop, um, to put out of use, or to render inoperative. So what is being said here is that the Mosaic Covenant and the glory that attached to it has been made inoperative because of the surpassing glory that has come under the new covenant that, that's superior in all ways. Yes? Um, I'd like you to expound on something, and that is if the new covenant supersedes the old covenant, mm -hmm. you always hear the argument of some people would say that 
the law then is done. And when it comes to salvation, they will say faith in Christ alone, and they'll forget about the repentance part. Oh, okay. So, I, okay. So the question was, uh, uh, what about the, the, the enduring uh, validity of God's moral law? Is that what you're saying? Okay. The old covenant as a system of justification has been done away with. Okay? And the blood of bulls and goats, if you, you know, we studied the book of Hebrews. But now Christ's blood was shed once for all to deliver us from sin that we might have the, by faith the imputed righteousness of Christ. Okay? Now, um, we would, see, I think most uh, theologians would would affirm that there are enduring uh, moral truths that are, can be found in the Old Covenant that are still valid, and most of which are reiterated under the New Covenant. So the law still has a function under the New Covenant. The law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. And it, and it also is a, an expression of God's moral nature as a holy God. And the law is holy. And Paul said that in Romans chapter 7. So... Uh, the law shows us our need. But if someone is trying to find justification under the terms of the Old Covenant, they, they cannot find it. They will not be justified either by trying to keep the law or by trying to go back to the sacrificial system or any other such thing. Because justification is only found in Christ. Now, there's other aspects of the Old Covenant that we would clearly say have been done away with, unless, of course, you're a Reconstructionist or something. But, for, for, for example, all of the stipulations that had to do with the theocratic kingdom are no longer binding. Why? Because we have no theocratic kingdom. So there were all these stipulations about the king, the, you know, what they're going to do when they get into the land, how everything will be constituted as a nation. That applied to Old Covenant Israel, the theocratic kingdom. So those, those um, things are no longer binding. Uh, yes, Bill? people today that want to reinstitute a theocratic kingdom. Yep. By default, would that mean that if they were to be successful in reinstituting the theocratic kingdom, would all those laws then apply? Yes. Actually, the, the Reconstructionists want to apply all those, including reinstituting slavery, um, uh, usury laws, anything they find in the Old Covenant, they want to establish it, uh, again and use that to try to rule over the nations. Uh, we had the Mormons under Joseph Smith that uh, found a formula for reinstituting the Melchizedek priesthood. Mm -hmm. And, of course, uh, they have their, their kingdom now, uh, temples and, and quorum of uh, apostles, and uh, you have to submit to their apostles or you're just not going to go to heaven. And, of course, once you get into that system, we're getting into plurality of wives and all sorts of stuff. So, uh, you know, we, we got kind of a mess. Uh, I, I, would, I would like to get to the bottom of where these guys get their ideas. Well, I think that they get them from the serpent. <laughs> <laughs> but there's always going to be somebody that uh, wants to create some, one of these theocratic kingdoms on the face of the earth. And... As I've been reading and researching, now that with this broken leg, I spent two weeks reading heresy uh, for... Uh, <laughs> yeah, what a, what a thing to do. Yeah. 
Well, I, actually, I found relief. Now I'm reading the truth. I'm reading MacArthur's new book, The Truth War, and it's fabulous. I'm three chapters into it. I'm telling you that as well. If there's nothing more good in the book than what I've already read, it's worth every penny. Especially when I got it for free. Robert gave it to me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> anyhow, no, it would have been worth the full, full retail for that one. But anyhow... As I was reading this stuff, for example, this emergent manifesto of hope, I read that entire book, all 25 essays. You get this kingdom now established, some, somehow the kingdom of God is going to happen on the earth through our efforts. It comes through on almost every page. All right? And there's something, uh, I, as the more I read what's current trends in religion, the more I think that we need a literal future eschatology to keep us from that. The kingdom of God doesn't come until the king comes. And the king is going to have the marks of Calvary. He's not going to be some avatar or uh, some Christ spirit or Christ consciousness. It's going to be the real Christ. And when he comes, he's going to bring judgment. It's not going to be uh, just this gradually the world becomes a better and better place. And then when it gets good enough, we'll call it the kingdom. Or there's another thing I was reading. We need to find the kingdom. We've got to look around out here and see where the kingdom's happening and then join in on it. All right? Uh, so what are we looking for? Well, that's determined by our own prejudices. Okay? If you, if you, if you are a, a socialist, if you look around and you see somewhere where, they, where they're setting up a government that's going to confiscate everybody's property and then redistribute it as they see fit, then you'll think that's the kingdom because you're a socialist and that's what your definition of the kingdom is. All right? If you think it's this reestablishment of the, like we were talking about earlier, well, then you'll look for conservative, more conservative politicians that are going to force everybody to obey a real strict moral law that they're going to establish. And then you'll think that's the kingdom. And so our prejudices and our inclinations are going to tell us what we think the kingdom looks like, and then we're going to go out there with our preconceived ideas and find the kingdom. And uh, that I read as I was reading these books. I, that I read that over and over again. So the antidote is to believe in a literal eschatology that, that don't believe them when they say, here he is, there he is. In Matthew 24, because these things are going to literally happen. There is future judgment, and there's no kingdom on earth until the king is here on earth. All right? And then that just, one failed swoop, you're done with all this. You're not deceived. All right? You, the only way you can advance the kingdom is by preaching the gospel so that when people repent and believe it, they're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Amen. Colossians. All right? And that's how you advance the kingdom, by preaching the gospel. Because then you're adding citizens to it. But the kingdom of God has no zip code. You know, you get a fundraising letter. Help, send us money because we're going to buy this property for the kingdom. No, you're not. The kingdom of God doesn't own property. You're buying that for you. And that's fine. But don't call it the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God doesn't own property. All right, enough of that. You started me on that. Okay. <laughs> okay, Sam. 
so Ryan's uh, latest article that was attached to your CIC article about uh, discernment. So the only way we can rid ourselves of our uh, prejudices is to know the Word of God as best we can, so that we can discern and not not have prejudices. Absolutely. And be and be fooled by uh, by you know the right. things of the world. Yeah, um, exactly. I was on uh, Ingrid Schlater's radio show. Um, what day was it? Thursday. She called. She had an interview with an emergent leader, and then wanted me to come on and, and give the alternate opinion. So I did, and she asked this emergent leader, "Define the gospel for me." Well, I said it's hard to define. You can have a 50-word or a 500-word or a five-word. No, define the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, he, he didn't want to. Finally, she said, no, I want a short version. Tell me what the gospel is. And he says, well, it's joining the mission of Jesus by uh, seeing what God's doing in the world and joining in. Okay, so we're supposed to look at what God's doing and joining in. So she asked me what the gospel was, and I told her. The wrath of God is directed against sin. We need the blood atonement. We need to repent and believe. And here's Jesus. Here's who he is. Here's what he did. We need to repent and believe the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, so then we discussed that thing. The gospel is finding out what God is doing in the world and joining it. But again, what God did you, if you, if you read my latest article, I, I talked about Blackbees experiencing God, and it falls on the same problem. He says, find out what God's doing in the world. Well, the, that's, a, that's a false category, because providentially, what God's doing in the world is everything that happens. God's ruling over history. He's drawing the boundaries of the nations. Okay? But providence contains good and evil. So you can't go to some place and say, God's here and he's not there. Or, uh, as I was doing the interview, there was a guy mowing the lawn right outside the window of my office. I said, well, I see a guy mowing the lawn. That's what God's doing in the world. (laughs) Uh, That's just a, a, a fallacious category. And then I told a story in that article about we had this pastor's meeting and a, and a pastor had just flown, this was in like 1989, 1990, 1991. He had just come back from Toronto to visit the Toronto Blessing. And he says, I've got to tell you guys what God is doing. He's working in Toronto. He says, I was sitting in the food line at the break between the meetings, and there's a guy right up front that flopped on the floor and started uh, making noises like a turkey. Gobble, 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 gobble in the food line. And he said, wow, God was working there. <laughs> so, I mean, it, that just shows you that if we're going to rely on our own sensibilities about what it looks like, what God's doing, uh, so my point is, this, it isn't, the gospel isn't finding out what God's doing, it's knowing what God has done. And the scripture tells us what God has done in Christ. Once for all. And what he's doing is sovereignly, providentially bringing history to its conclusion. But providence contains good and evil. So we can only know the moral law of God from the Bible, not by observing general revelation or human history. So, honestly, our prejudices are always going to deceive us if we try to look at history and and think, unless we just are looking for conversions. Okay, that's specifically a, a work of grace. Anything that would, the Bible calls means of grace is what God will use providentially to change lives. We can look for that. 
All right, so, uh, but just looking at human history, you can't find the kingdom of God. Yes? Uh, right now, I'm taking a look at a lot of different groups, some legit, some not legit, and they're all using the vehicle of engaging the culture with a Christian worldview, such as Worldview Weekend with Dr. Nobles, and you have all sorts of groups, and they, they, they would say, we need to band together and uh, fight the onslaught of secularism, humanism, pluralism, and all the rest of the isms. And you have this, this mixture, and they seem on the outside to be you know, uh, uh, exercising Christianity. Well, okay, well, there's nothing wrong with engaging the culture with our ideas as far as believing that there's a sovereign creator, that we didn't evolve from apes, uh, and so on. Uh, unless we're calling that the kingdom. I mean, we're not going to establish the kingdom of God by debating ideas, but we can debate ideas for the sake of our children and grandchildren. Okay? Uh, I, the people like Francis Schaeffer, I, would, I, I think, did, did us a service. I think Schaeffer did us a great service by engaging the th thoughts of the culture that we're in so that we don't end up doing likewise. I think you could find a precedent for that in the Apostle Paul in uh, Titus. Paul said, the Cretans are lazy gluttons. One of their own said, the Cretans are always lazy gluttons. He says, and this testimony is true, therefore reprove them that they might be sound in the face. So the Christian, like Titus, in Crete, needs to stand against laziness and gluttony in the Crete, because otherwise they'll come into the church. All right? So I would, uh, personally, I see nothing. In fact, I think uh, Dr. Noble's doing a, a good thing. And he's not claiming that he's going to reconstruct the, and turn America into the kingdom. At least I haven't heard, all right? As soon as you start thinking you're going to establish the kingdom, that's when you've got a problem. But you can always address ideas. Well, let's get back to the idea in here. That which fades away is glory. So that's the old covenant. But that which remains is in glory. The uh, meno, the Greek word, means to be permanent. So the permanent is the new covenant. And the new covenant is established in his blood. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Um, so uh, the, the blood atonement it always is the, the ground of the, of the new covenant. And we need to remember that. And that's how we can be right with God. Okay, uh, Robert, I'm going to hand out some verses here. Pauline, Romans 5, 20 and 21. Kathy, Hebrews 7, 21 to 25. Carl, Hebrews 8, 13. Robert, Hebrews 12, 25 to 29. It's no shock that I have a lot of cross-references in Hebrews, because Hebrews is all about the, the new covenant and its superiority over the old covenant. Amen? Okay, our first passage, though, is Romans 5, 20 and 21. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So, so there's this uh, old sin reigns, the new. We have the righteousness of Christ, in, and there's a reigning in life for those who are redeemed. Now, Hebrews 7, 21 through 25. For they have become priests with an oath, but he with an oath by him who, ha who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever. When he had said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete 
and growing old is ready to disappear. All right, the old, that's a very important verse, Hebrews 8.13. That's a good verse for the Judaizers that are still around. There are people saying that you have to keep uh, kosher and you have to keep Sabbath and you have to do Torah. There's even Torah-only churches. All right, they should read that verse. What did it just say? It's obsolete. It's ready to disappear, which is, I believe, proof that Hebrews was written before 70 A.D., so the, the whole system was going to disappear. Hebrews 12, 25-29. Yeah. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven, now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we, have, uh, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Wow. Great passage. Now here we have the idea of future judgment, right? That we're being warned from heaven. Now that means Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Christ has spoken once for all, but he's, he's reigning in heaven. He's speaking to us through his word. And we are being warned that there's coming a shaking that's what worse than the shaking that happened at Sinai. All right? And there's a, there's a contrast between that old covenant, which, which we think, wow, that was really awesome. They actually saw the fire and the smoke and the earth shaking and man, they had to know there was a God. Okay? I mean, they, were, they could see. But here it says, this is greater. We're being warned not from earth, but from heaven. And this future shaking is going to be far more cataclysmic. It's going to involve the heavens and the earth. It's going to be a universal judgment that's going to uh, shake everything shakable. And the only unshakable thing is what we've received from Christ, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that in the sense that we've entered by faith. And then when he comes, there'll be this cataclysmic judgment and the establishment of the kingdom with the king literally reigning on the earth. Okay, so there's a warning uh, about uh, that we have to take more seriously the words that have come from Jesus Christ because there is indeed a future judgment. Yes? Okay, I, um, I, I have a question here um, regarding... Thank you. <laughs> uh, regarding prophecy then uh, with this. And uh, it says uh, in my notes that the author of Hebrews is pretty much unknown. There's several different... Yeah, we don't know who wrote it. And, and then the, the prophecy, how it's lined up, then couldn't there be a better guesstimation of who wrote it by prophecy rather than... It, there's no way to know who wrote it, but be just because we don't know. It's never been stated in the scripture who wrote it. Uh, one, one thing about Hebrews, it has some of the most eloquent Greek in the entire Bible. In fact, almost unsurpassed. The only Greek, as far as people that can read classical and New Testament Greek, and just to see how uh, articulate the Greek is. For instance, John's Greek is almost rudimentary, and which would indicate it was written by a Jewish fisherman. All right? And so if you want to start studying Greek, you go read 1 John or something, because it's so easy. It's so simplistic. Um, but Luke, Acts, 
and Hebrews have the most advanced and articulate usage of the Greek language that you find in the New Testament, and, and which would support the idea that Luke actually was written by an educated Luke, who was a physician, and all we can say about Hebrews is whoever wrote it was very, very fluent in Greek. It's just a fabulous uh, use of the Greek language. So, um, Okay, so let's go to verse 12 here. Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. Now this becomes an important word for Paul here, boldness. Parousia is the Greek word, and it can mean openness, in other words, not hidden, but clear, open. It can mean confidence. It can mean boldness. And, uh, for example, actually, I, I have cross-references that will bring this out. But it's something that comes uh, through the gospel. It's something that God wants us to have as gospel preachers is boldness. And that's, <laughs> that's why I was thinking of a radio interview again where the contrast, what I say and do is, offends the people so badly because they're having a conversation and the worst thing you can ever do is say that you're right and somebody else is wrong. That's like the biggest social blunder and the most, if there's any definition of evil, that's it. All right? And so, we're, well, yeah, we, don't, we agree with everybody, but we don't agree with everything, and nobody has all the truth, and we're having a conversation, and we're, we're, we're having a dialogue. So then Ingrid brings me on. I said, no, we don't go out on the street corner preaching to sinners and, and assuming the sinner might be right and we might be wrong. Then it might be better to disobey God's moral law and go to hell than it would be to believe the gospel. No. We have the truth, and we're to proclaim it with boldness. That doesn't mean you can't use tact, and you can't be kind, and you can't listen, and you can't be engaging or winsome or all the different things that people might be, but we don't go into a gospel preaching, Bible teaching, preaching sermons, teaching a Bible class or anything else with, with a lack of boldness because we don't think we know anything, and we can't have any confidence that the Word of God is true. So this is a value in the New Testament. This word parousia, confidence and boldness, is a gospel virtue. And Paul says that he has that and that it's a good thing. Why? Because he's not adulterating the Word of God. He's not crafty. He's not hidden. He said of our gospels, hidden is hidden to those whose minds have been blinded by Satan. It's not hidden because we didn't make it clear. All right? So there's something inherent in the gospel that has to be clear. It has to be open. It has to be expressed in, in its, in its uh, truth, in its uh, innate offensiveness. It is the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. So boldness should be the, the earmark of the gospel preacher. And so it has been until the postmodern age has determined that boldness like this is a sign of arrogance, lack of humility, uh, being offensive, being out of step with the times, being out of step with, with uh, being stuck back in the modernity and enlightenment, on and on and on. Dear ones, don't be intimidated by this. Don't be intimidated by this. God will still use the truth to set people free. Amen.
and, and, we, uh, and so we, we have a, a, a gospel that's clear and open. It's not secret. It's not hidden. And it should be uh, characteristic of our speech that we don't veil. Now, he's talking about this veil. Paul's not putting a veil over his message. Paul's not veiling the new covenant like Moses' face was veiled. But he's, he's open and forthright. See, notice in verse 13, not as Moses put a veil over his face. So he's contrasting boldness with being veiled. All right? It should not be veiled. So because of this new covenant hope and because of the new covenant glory, having such hope, our confidence in God's promises through Christ, we speak with boldness. Now, let's look this up. Um, Dale, if you could look up Acts 4.13, and then Michelle, Acts 4.29-31, and Denise, Acts 9.27. And let's look uh, for this concept in the, new, in the book of Acts. Okay? Uh, Coralie, could you look up 2 Corinthians 10.1 while they're doing that? Okay, Acts 4.13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Okay, that word confidence is parousia, boldness. So here are these uh, ignorant, untrained men speaking with authority and boldness. And they weren't intimidated by the top educated religious elite. Okay? So, why? Why did they have such boldness? Oh, they've been with Jesus. We remember another guy that was like that. He speaks with authority. He speaks the authoritative words of God. And these guys do too. And besides that, I think that they had a pretty good education. You know, some people go to a, you get a bachelor's degree in four years and a master's degree in two or three years and so on. That's a good thing to do. But I'd say three years with Jesus is right up there. <laughs> Not a bad education. If you had the best teacher that ever was, maybe you could have an abbreviated process of getting your Ph.D., all right, um, now notice then they were told they couldn't preach in the name of Jesus. By the way, this whole story, there was a healing, and then they were bold, and they were, they were punished. They said, you can't teach in the name of Jesus. Notice that the attack isn't against the good deeds, it's against the preaching of the gospel. Now, John MacArthur, in his new book, The Truth War, talks about that. And there, the big problem, MacArthur points out, with substituting our practice for our doctrine, and which is the, that those books I read the last couple of weeks, that's all they want to talk about. Orthopraxis, orth, not orthodoxy. We want practice, 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 practice. We can't know doctrine. That's just a throwback to the Enlightenment, but we're going to have a godly practice. But what MacArthur says is since we are saved by faith, it's obvious that what we believe is, takes priority over what we do. Because we can do good deeds and go to hell. But if we, if we don't believe the gospel correctly, you can be the Dalai Lama and be lost. And so he said, obviously, the, the words of the, of the gospel have to take priority first. And then our practice is a result of the fruits of the Spirit at work in the lives of Christians. 
But the idea that uh, all we need is practice because we can't possibly know doctrine. Uh, MacArthur had a great, uh, great line. Now, this Acts 4 incident is proof of that. The authorities didn't say, you guys can preach all you want, just don't heal anybody. Are you, are you following me? No, they, they said, all they, they didn't forbid healing. They forbade preaching. Because they saw the preaching as a threat to their earthly kingdom, but they didn't see any threat in good deeds. You can do good deeds from forever and the world will love you. They, they won't, they, do all the good deeds you want, but if you preach the gospel to us and tell us that other people are lost, we are so offended. Yeah, okay. What's funny how all that stuff gets recycled. Uh, just a couple of years ago, they were trying to keep the military from praying in the name of Jesus, if you recall. <laughs> There's always a battle yeah. about that, isn't right. there? Okay, so now Michelle has uh, a section that shows what they, uh, they, after they were told they couldn't preach anymore, they went into a prayer meeting. So Michelle, read about what their prayer meeting was about. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Okay, that word confidence and boldness is our word parousia. So they were told, they were, the leader said, well, these guys have parousia confidence and they're ignorant and untrained and then they said you can't preach in the name of jesus so they went and prayed and said lord give us parousia boldness and they were filled with the spirit and what happens when people are spirit filled they speak the word with boldness all right that's what the whole infilling of the holy spirit does it causes you to prophesy causes you to speak in the name of jesus true authoritative words of god with boldness so there's that word. Now, uh, Acts 9:27. But Barnabas took him. Hold on. Let's see. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Wow, boldly. He had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. There's, there's the word parousia. And 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. Okay, there's that word bold again. So Paul was bold because he, he, what was that issue was the gospel itself. And we are engaged in a battle about the authority of God's word and the power of the gospel to change lives. That's what it is. It's, it, MacArthur's right. It's a truth war. And it started in the Garden of Eden. When, when the serpent said, Hath God said, the battle ensued. And the battle is no different today than it was in the Garden of Eden. Can we really have a Bible that's authoritative, propositional, inerrant, that tells us clearly the terms of the covenant and how we can be right with God? Or are these words simply uh, inadequate uh, to convey meaning because we're sophisticated in this postmodern time to realize 
that we can't know meaning. We, we can only have an experience. It's a war. And it's not just for the 21st century. It started in the Garden of Eden. Hath God said. Now, oh, I had some more passages. Uh, Lincoln, uh, Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. Larry, Philippians 1, 20. And Lois, 1 Thessalonians 2, 2. Okay, uh, yours is 1 Thessalonians 2, 2. Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. Um, which is, by the way, we have a spiritual warfare going on. That's what Ephesians 6 is about. And the armor of God is all gospel truth. The battle is about the gospel. Yes, okay, Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. And also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Okay, so there's Paul. It seems almost odd to think Paul needs prayer to be bold. I mean, this guy, if you read about him in Acts, he's bold, 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 bold. But he's asking for prayer to be bold in the gospel. Why? Because we're all intimidated in some regard. It is never easy to tell everybody what they don't want to hear. And we all need prayer. It's not easy to do. And so boldness is something that should be part and parcel of the gospel. Okay, uh, Philippians 1 and verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Okay, so they need to have full courage that Christ would be honored. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, 2. Um, and then, uh, and sent Timotheus, uh, uh, Timotheus, our brother, and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to control you, uh, con- comfort you concerning your faith. I don't think so. First Thessalonians two two. Three, two. Here I got it right here. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So here's Paul persecuted and still bold in the gospel. In fact, one of my favorite stories about Paul is when. I think it's in Acts 14, when he was stoned, they thought he was dead. They stoned him and left him to die. And he didn't die, and they got him up. And so he went to the next town and preached the gospel. How's that for boldness? Uh, Yeah, Kathy. What do you do when a person says things that are true, but they aren't saved, and will talk to you with verses back and forth? Well, there are unsaved people that know the Bible. Uh, in fact, you know who really knows the Bible are the atheists. If you're going on one of those infidel org, uh, websites, they scour through the Bible trying to find contradictions. And I think it should, given how big the Bible is, okay, it was written over a long time by so many different authors, 66 books, they scour, 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 scour to find every contradiction they can find in the Bible. And what amazing me is how few they can find. And the ones that, you know, the people can give answers to almost all of the contradictions they claim. But they were, the atheists know the Bible. Satan knows the Bible too. But it's one thing to know the words. It's another thing to believe. Okay? And so um, 
it's not unusual to run into critics who are very well-versed in the Bible who try to upset our, our faith. Now, let's, let's go to verse 13 and at least get started on that. And then there's a passage um, that we should probably read again to give us the background in the Old Testament. I know we read it a few weeks ago, but let's read verse 13 and we're going to look at Exodus 34. Verse 13, And not as Moses he used to put a veil over his face that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end, end telos in the Greek, of what was fading away. There's our... Um, Participle, again, the same one used in verse 11, that which fades away in the neuter. So probably the old covenant. So in a sense, Paul is using this as sort of an analogical argument based on the historical event that happened with Moses. Now that event is found in Exodus 34. Let's all turn there. Exodus 34, 29 to 35. Exodus 34, beginning with verse 29. Story of Moses and the veil. And I'll read it, as we, and you can follow along in your Bible. And it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of is speaking with him, that is the Lord. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation, and returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. And afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, he had been, when he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. So he was veiled in front of the people, unveiled before God. Now, Paul is making kind of a... Uh, Midrashic, as some some said, it's like Jewish midrash, uh, commentary on that incident and making a contrast. And the contrast would be that um, the problem, I believe, the problem with the people was their own hardness of heart. And you can see that from the very first time Moses came down with the two tablets. What what were they doing when Moses came down with the tablets? They had a big party with a golden calf. And so what did Moses do? He broke the tablets. He was, he was angry at their sin and their rebellion. They were sinful, hard-hearted people. <coughs> and so in the Old Testament, whenever you, there's a veil, there's the veil that Moses had that, that in a sense indicated a, separate, a, separate, a separation between the sin, hard-hearted sinner and the glory of God. And then when they built the tabernacle... They put a veil in there, didn't they not? And the veil in the tabernacle signified a separation from the holy God who is a consuming fire like we read in Hebrews 12 and a sinful people that would die in his presence. So I believe this veiledness in a sense is an indication of the hardness of heart of the people. Okay, Moses could speak to God. 
the people had a mediated version, but they had, he was veiled. Now, notice in verse 14, we get that idea. Their minds were hardened. Okay? So the, the veil separates the hardened sinner from the glory of God that would be break out and kill him, so to speak. They couldn't touch the mountain. They couldn't look at Moses' face. So all of this indicates a hardness and, um, and a, a very difficult situation. Now, there's been a lot of discussion by the people who have studied these passages trying to understand what's being said. But I, I think that uh, I found some very good commentary by this Garland, who uh, Garland's commentary, 2 Corinthians is excellent. Uh, it's, it's, it's the best one I have that I found, anyhow. And so let me um, read how he comments on verse 13. He says, He argues that Moses veiled himself to protect the people of Israel. The Israelites were justifiably afraid given their sin and subsequent punishment. No hint appears in the text in ex- Exodus or in contemporary Jewish tradition that the glory on Moses' face was fading. See, some, some commentators had pointed out, because Paul talks about this, um, uh, what was fading away, that the veil was there so the people wouldn't see that the glory was fading. Okay? And so this garland is disagreeing with that interpretation because he thinks the, the key issue is the hardness of the people's hearts, not that the glory was fading, because that wasn't the key point in Exodus. And I think that the fading is Paul's commentary on the Old Covenant. Yes? How about the veil or curtain torn when Christ was Yeah, it showed that, there, that that's exactly fitting with this, doesn't it? Paul says the veil's taken away in Christ. When we turn to the Lord, the veil's taken away. And so the, the, now the sinner can come before a holy God justified if he puts his faith in Christ. And that, I think, is uh, the reason forensic justification is falling into disrepute in some circles is that we have too um, weak of an understanding of the holiness of God. All right? And we don't understand how profound it is that a sinner could ever go before a holy God. And we think that God is more imminent rather than transcendent and that God is more um, domesticated, so to speak, so that we might find God a lot of different ways. I read an essay the last week where a guy claims that you could actually come to God through other religions. All right? And so uh, the idea that coming before a holy God unjustified would result in our doom is fading from people's beliefs. They don't, just don't think it's that way. This idea that our God is a consuming fire just doesn't play. All right? But if you understand it, if you understand the, the holiness of God and that we would instantly die in his presence as sinners, then if somebody can announce to you that, that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin and he's given you the gift of his imputed righteousness by faith so that you could stand before the holy judge of the universe justified, you would see that as good news. Wouldn't you see that as great, wonderful news? And so this is, uh, uh, that's why Paul said that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who is in Christ Jesus. And when I'm reading these modern theologians that think that that means nothing, I just read a German theologian who claimed 
that the, the death of Christ and the resurrection are a contradiction, a logical contradiction. The death of Christ being understood in existential terms as non-being and the resurrection as being. And you take those contradictions and you use the Hegelian synthesis to come up with a new reality. That's how this German theologian was interpreting the cross. Because he knows, theology, he knows philosophy, but he doesn't understand justification by faith. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. What were you going to say? I was going to say, in a sense, they're right that they can come before the Lord in a, uh, through other religions, but it will only be at the white throne judgment. Yes. Um, remember that uh, Brian and I were uh, out in Stockton, California, and discussing the idea about all, that the New Age believes all paths lead to God? And we said, well, they actually do. <laughs> yeah, it just may not be a good thing. You're either going to lead to God before God as the judge or lead before God as the Savior, but all paths do lead to God, but it isn't a good thing. <laughs> all right, so um, I'm reading here from Garland. So the glory was mediated on Moses' face, and the repeated veiling rendered inoperative the effects of the glory on his face. The veil hides the glory of the Lord because when the veil is removed, we see the glory of the Lord. So he says that Moses was protecting the people from a dire consequence if they gazed continually at the reflected glory of God radiating from his face. The telos, end, of the glory on Moses' face does not refer to some purpose or goal um, or to Christ, but to consequences that concerns the death that divine glory inflicts on hardened hearts. Okay, it's just like if you went running into the holiest place and, well, this veil is not that hard. I'll just pull it aside and run in here. Well, you'd get a few steps inside maybe <laughs> before you died. In fact, this, you know what, in a footnote in here, he said, he said in some ways, uh, uh, Harris, that uh, Harrison Ford movie made that point where they, remember the, the Germans found the, the, the ark? And they opened it up, and they were consumed. Okay? And uh, the idea is you just don't go barging in on the glory of God. So he points this out. Now, Garland says, Israel's idolatry with the golden calf betrayed the hardened condition of the people. It was not some minor lapse. but something symptomatic of their incorrigible wickedness. The goal of the Old Covenant was the manifestation of the glory of God, but it had the effect of bringing death and condemnation to those with hardened hearts, rather than transforming into glory. See 3.18. If God's glory had continued in their midst during their hardened condition, the people have been utterly destroyed. Exodus 33.3 and 5. Because of Israel's idolatry, Moses becomes the only link between the people and God. He alone experiences God's glory and mediates it to the people. Their hardened hearts made it necessary for Moses to wear a veil to compensate for the people's sinfulness. Wearing the veil was therefore Moses' way of protecting the stiff-necked people from the death-dealing judgment of the glory of God. Just like the fence, just uh, stay away from Mount Sinai, the veil, stay away from his glory, it's going to kill you because you're too sinful. And then when they, the tabernacle is built, they veil the holiest place for the same reason. And now, dramatically, let me, I'm out of time, but let me just read, as I did earlier, the glorious truth of the new covenant. Let this sink in, dear brothers and sisters. Verse 18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding in a, as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, 
from glory to glory as from the Lord the Spirit. The glory of the new covenant is that if you believe in Jesus Christ and trust him, you have the imputed righteousness of Christ and you can go in and see the glory of God with unveiled face. Wow. So when you catch the entire whole counsel of God, you can see what Paul's saying. Isn't that glorious? And, and so, brothers and sisters, I, we have to understand the holiness of God, and then we can understand the glory of the gospel. So next week we'll begin here with, um, with verse uh, 14 and uh, talk more about the gospel. <laughs> God bless you. See you.